we're human beings. We're not perfectly rational. And because of that, some of these questions are going to require that the advisor works as a behavioral coach and starts incorporating choice architecture, such as this three-step technique that we presented in the research. Hey, everybody. This is Matt Fazell in Dallas, Texas, and you're listening to You're a Financial Planner. Now what? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today's guests are Samantha Lamas, a behavior researcher at Morningstar Investment Management, and Ryan Murphy, PhD, Morningstar's Head of Decision Sciences. And they've joined us to share their award-winning research and the tool they've developed to help you with your clients and their goals. Up next, we have a great episode that's going to help you build more powerful, actionable, and meaningful investment plans for clients. And FBA is also proud to announce that for the first time, you can earn CFP Board CE credit with this Your Financial Planner Now What episode. Just search for 244 in FBA's Learning Center or check out our show notes for a direct link. But first, this episode is brought to you by the 2021 Summer FPA Externship and eMoney, a leading provider of technology and solutions that help people talk about money. Don't miss out on the flexible internship experience that made waves across financial planning in 2020. The FPA Externship is great for college students and practicing financial planners alike. Come see how other FPA members grow their business and lead with financial planning using eMoney. Also, don't miss this opportunity to get eMoney certified. Check out fpaexternship.org for more information or sign up for the waitlist. Well, thanks for joining us today, Sam and Ryan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. So before we dive into this paper that you guys have written and some of the, the so many insights that you guys have in this and other areas, I'd love to hear, kind of tell me more about what is your role at Morningstar and kind of what what does your day-to-day look like? Sure. Um, and I can go first, Ryan. So as you all know by now, my name is Smith Lamas. I'm a behavioral researcher at Morningstar. Uh, so what my role focuses on is understanding who investors are, what are their goals, what are the obstacles they face towards reaching these goals, and how can we help them overcome these obstacles? And then after that, I try to focus on sharing these insights with the rest of the industry and advisors, and whether that's through white papers or presentations or articles, or even just tools and techniques that they can start using in their practice. My name is Ryan Murphy. I'm the head of decision sciences for Morningstar Investment Management. I have an academic background, and so a lot of time I spend looking at research and thinking about ways to try and better understand how people make, how they make decisions. A lot of the research we have is based on the assumption that people are perfectly rational, and lots of what we find is that just isn't the case. But there's a systematicness to the kinds of errors that people tend to make, and that's useful to know as we try and help people make better decisions. I'm just fascinated, even just by what your job titles are. What has surprised you the most as you've really gone into this field of, you know, of really understanding investors and their behaviors? I think personally, it would be all the mistakes that we actually make. And in a lot of the research I do, when I look back at my own actions, I find myself making the same mistakes. Um, And the perfect example is with um, the mining for goals or the goals research that we've worked on in the past. And, and, And really what we found there was that a lot of people don't know their top three financial goals off the top of their heads, uh, which makes sense now. But after doing this research, I actually started a conversation with a financial advisor just in my own personal finances. And they asked me a question, you know, what what are your financial goals? And at that moment, I had no idea what they were. And I found it, I find it so funny now is because it was after I did this research. Like I, I knew what to expect. I, I knew the possible biases that we face. And still in the moment of 
in a true moment of action, I fell into the same traps. So I guess what surprises me the most is that one, these biases exist, and two, that how much of an impact it can have on our on our decisions and on our finances, and three, that even knowing these things, I find myself still making these mistakes as well. Yeah, and to build on that, I think that there are these simple things that we tend to get wrong. And so the research that we'll be talking more about has this idea of asking people, what are your overarching goals? And this is a really straightforward question, and we would think that most people would know the answer to that, but often people don't. And rather than just stop and say, I, I have no idea, people tend to say something, right? And so there's this idea that comes out of literature called cognitive blind spots. So there are these ways in which people tend to not see the mistakes they make. And I think what I continue to be surprised at is how persistent these are, and even knowing they're there, how easy it is still to get tripped up by these tendencies to, to just not pay attention or to miss out or not even know basic stuff about what are we trying to accomplish in the first place. Okay, so let's dive into this paper that you guys wrote, because a lot of the questions, even off what you just said, are really pull out um, from this paper. So first of all, congratulations on, um, on doing this paper and winning the Montgomery Warshire Award. It's like the big research award um, in financial planning for, for a research paper that has had really the biggest impact on practitioners. So congratulations on winning that uh, in 2020. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a, a huge honor. Unexpected surprise. Yeah. So the title of this paper is Goals-Based Financial Planning, How Simple Lists Can Overcome Cognitive Blind Spots. So tell me more, and you guys have kind of fleshed it out a little bit already, but when we talk about these cognitive blind spots, like what does that actually look like um, in practice for ourselves and for our clients? For example, let's go through a scenario. So say you have a client and they're walking into your office for the very first time and you sit them down and you, you ask them, what are your overarching 30-year financial goals? Uh, so we should know this answer. We should have an idea of it when we're walking into your office. But the truth is that doesn't always happen. And, and that's because we're human. And as human beings, a lot of the times we depend on our biases uh, when facing these tough decisions. So in this example, maybe it's availability bias. So at that exact moment of asking this question, the first thing that pops into the client's mind is maybe buying a house. And that could be because they really want to buy a house or it could be because they just went to a great virtual housewarming party. And that's just the first thing that pops into their mind. Um, and we find this a lot with with investors that it, it just they go with what just pops into their mind at that exact moment. And it could not be something that they truly care about. You know, it's fascinating hearing you you talk about that because often, you know, I know financial planners get frustrated because clients change a lot, um, you know, over, over time. And, and it's interesting to think that perhaps clients are changing because we didn't get a clear idea of what their goals were in the first place. Well, the change could come from two sources. The change could come from a cl client really changing what they're motivated by, what they're trying to accomplish, or it could just be like Sam was saying, whatever popped into their head most recently. And so I think what we were trying to do in this research was try and go back to this idea of a really simple question, right? What are you trying to accomplish as an investor? and give people enough space and a process where they can think through that question, that seemingly easy question, with a little more, uh, well, in a, in a way that helps them get at a more reliable answer. And what we found is that the sorts of things people say off the top of their heads aren't really the same sorts of things they say after maybe five or 10 minutes of reflection. And it's that deeper insight that comes out of a little bit more digging that is a better and a more reliable answer. So for an advisor who's trying to give good financial advice that's goal-centric, and that reflects our thinking on what constitutes good financial advice, this is a fundamental thing. 
getting down to what is really motivating this client and what are they trying to accomplish. You know, you say, you know, five to 10 minutes of this reflection. How does that apply to financial planners? Like, what does that look like? What do the best financial planners do in order to really um, give their clients that space to come up with the appropriate goals for themselves? Within the the actual research, we tested out a technique to help advisors do just that. So it's a three-step technique. And the the main addition is the addition of a, a master list or a checklist of financial goals. Um, so I can briefly go through the technique if if that would help. No, that would be great. So in the first step, it's just asking the investor, what are your top three financial goals right off the top of their heads? And this is typically what's done in the industry today. But in the second step, we give the clients or the, the participants a master list of investing goals. And these are goals that we collected from other academic academic articles, other industry articles, um, media articles, et cetera. So it's pretty comprehensive. And it's a mix of both short-term and long-term goals, as well as goals that are more objective, but as well as goals that are more emotionally based. So we try to have a really good mix to uh, be able to connect with every participant. And then in that step, we ask participants to go through each of the goals and check off the ones that are important to them, but they just forgot to mention the first time around. And then also cross out goals that aren't important to them. So we're really trying to break down the process for them and help them think through each of the available options and maybe even start brainstorming about ones that aren't on the list, but that these, these ones on the list may remind them of, et cetera. And then in the last step, we gave participants a the, the, the master list, including the, the goals that they listed out in the first step. And we asked them once again to rank their top three financial goals. Um, and actually from the experiment, we found that it was like 70% of people changed at least one of their top three goals after going through this three-step process. And as part of the research, we actually released a FINRA-reviewed version of this exercise for invest or for advisors to start using with their clients. That's fascinating. Seventy percent of participants changed the results of their their top three financial goals. Yes, it's fascinating, also very concerning. <laughs> and you can imagine how frustrating it would be for a financial advisor trying to build a good plan, a good portfolio. And what the client said they were trying to achieve is, is very unstable, right? So this changed over a process of just five minutes of talking through a master list. And, and by having that process and by giving the clients more time to better understand what their motivations were, that I think helps us come to a more reliable answer. But if we didn't have the rest of that process, then the advisor would be left with whatever their client said first. And that may be indicative of what they're really motivated by, or that may be just something that came to them at the top of their head. So it's really hard to see the different or the, you know, to discern between those two uh, if you didn't have a longer process. And as you're helping them define their goals, I mean, really at this step, are you just saying general goals of like buying a house or are you looking at, I want to buy a house for X number of dollars? Like, are you getting kind of the dollars tied to it or is it more just general goals? This research is focused on just at a high level. So what is your overarching goal as a uh, that you're trying to trying to accomplish as an investor, the, the vast majority of people we find are trying to save for retirement. And that makes sense. But I think that what the next step then for a good financial planner is to dig into precisely what is the timing of that and what's the amount that fits with that goal and, and being more specific about the details of it. But at a high level, what we're doing first and foremost is trying to help people understand their why of their becoming investors in the first place. And there's that great quote by Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. 
And I think that this is just the fundamental stuff of trying to help people understand where they're trying to go as investors. You know, I'm thinking through this as a financial planner, but I'm curious, you know, as you were doing your research, did you get any insights into what investors or what the participants in your research, were they surprised by this as well? Or how did they respond to all of this? So I I think one of the advantages of using a process like this is that you don't have to call too much attention to the blind spots that people have. So you don't have to embarrass people, right? It's one of those things where if you ask a person a really simple question, they feel compelled to say something. And putting them through a process like this, you you run the risk of them feeling like you're pointing out that they're not thinking clearly or they don't even know what they're talking about. And that I think could backfire. So part of the way we did this is it's very open-ended and there's this checklist in the middle and this process around it that gives people enough space to change their minds and also start to hone in on exactly what motivates them. And part of that's also reflected in the specificity of the goals that they come up with. So for example, in the first part of the process that Sam was describing, people will say things that are very vague and high level. For example, people might be investing to cover the costs of incidentals. I really have no idea what that means, right? It sounds smart, but I, I don't know what that means. But by the third step of the process, people are saying things that are much more grounded and specific. For example, to make sure that they have enough resources not to be a burden on their children when they retire. And that's a lot more, you know, that it has emotional grounding to it. And that's something I think an advisor can really build off of. So I think that this idea of helping people better understand themselves is useful. And I think that that's just a useful reminder to all of us as we go through and grapple with these big questions is that we may, to some degree, be strangers to ourselves. And having processes like this can help us better understand what motivates us. And this can be a useful process that financial advisors can use to not only understand their clients, but help their clients better understand themselves. Exactly. I think the only thing I would add to that is that, as Ryan mentioned, it might be a bad idea to show people how wrong they were. So we didn't do that, but we did do some form of user testing with with investors to see how they liked the process. And we generally got pretty good feedback that people found it helpful and they, they enjoyed going through the process in general. Maybe this is my bias coming out, but people want to learn more uh, about themselves and really even in their goals as well. Agreed. Especially with such a difficult question. It's the question itself. It's, it's hard because it forces us to, you know, forecast our future desires, which is really hard for us to do. It, it, it involves our emotions because it has to do with all the money that we spent so long saving and investing. And then it also, it's, it's a very complex problem. It, it, it involves math and numbers and all these things that we're not comfortable with. And maybe the reason why we go to an advisor for help. So I think at least in my opinion, I guess as well, having a process like this can be sort of a, com- a comforting addition to the financial process in general. It helps you work through this very difficult problem. You're not completely alone in a way. You know, this idea that it's difficult to forecast our future, that we're actually really bad judges of what our future will look like. Why is that? Sure. So that's part of our tendency. We have a tendency towards hyperbolic discounting. It's very hard for us to know what we want 30 years from now because we don't know who we're going to be 30 years from now. And we can't really picture how our lives will be 30 years from now. And that's because we're, as human beings, we're focused on the here and the now. And that helped us a lot when we were, you know, cavemen and had to worry about where our next meal was going to come from. But in our finances, it can get us into a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think that, I mean, Sam raises a really good point. Like, remember, I'm, our brains are the process of an evolutionary process that is not designed for long-term investing. And there are lots of sorts of foibles that people have that be, 
can be particularly accentuated in, in marketplace. So this requires people to do several things that are unnatural. It requires people, first off, to delay consumption, and that's just saving and investing. And that's hard for people to do. It requires the exercise of patience. It also requires people to embrace uncertainty. And this is something our brains are also not wired to like. And so being an investor is not easy. And it's worth highlighting this and understanding that, okay, these are difficult things to do. Why am I putting myself through that? And that's why I think goals and focusing on goals can be very useful for financial advisors and helping their clients make good decisions. These goals can provide the underlying why of people are doing this to themselves. And it provides lots of uh, benefits as well. For example, can act as an antidote to return chasing. And this is the kind of thing that can be counter to people's long-term benefit. Ryan, you mentioned this idea of embracing uncertainty, and I know this is a big part of what really great financial planners do. How do financial planners really grow and develop in embracing this uncertainty, especially if they're used to more of this very process-driven or very um, very linear way of, of planning? Well, I think part of what financial planners can then help their clients understand is here's what we know, and here's the kinds of things we can make good predictions about, and here's what we don't know and to help there be a clear delineation between those two things. And so people may fall prey to this idea that the markets are more predictable than they really are in the short term. And that can lead people to do some bad things like try and time markets and chase returns, which doesn't turn out well in the long run. So I think that helping financial planners can help their clients know and, and think about that, that. We don't know what the market's going to do next week, the week thereafter, these sorts of things. But if you take a really long-term perspective, that's where markets pay off. And I think that what financial advisors can help do is recast the process of investing rather than be about what the market did yesterday. I really don't care. That's such a short-term perspective. But rather think ahead to what the market is going to do for their clients in the next 20 years. And in coming, I know I sound a little bit like a broken record, but coming back to this idea of goals is really valuable for this because it's a natural way to pivot people's attention from the short-term, what did the market do yesterday? Did it go up? Did it go down? Who really cares? But to pivot attention back to, okay, in 20 years, I want to accumulate this much resources to, to fund this goal. All right, so what do I need to do today to get there? And it's not about market timing, and it's not about what the market did recently. It's about saving and investing enough. It's about a proper asset allocation, and it's about sticking to the plan over the long term. And recasting the process of investing in terms of the long-term goals, I think, is a really useful way to try and pivot people's attention to make better decisions in that kind of time frame. I know that the research paper that we're looking at right now didn't necessarily address this, but I'm curious, you know, over time, especially if you've done a really good job of assessing what a client's goal is right now, how do those, do those goals tend to stay roughly the same or do you see those change over, over the lifetime of a client? Okay. So this research shows that the largest goals that people have are retirement. That is by and large what people are most motivated by, safe and secure retirement when you give them time to reflect on this. And that, that's the most popular goal by about two to three times than anything else. And then it's things like have enough resources to make a down payment on a house, pay for education for children. These are the, the big ones. And you can see how these would have a little bit of sequencing to them. And so for people in the early part of their investing and saving career, maybe more focused on getting the house down payment made, and then it might be getting kids through university. And then after that, retirement becomes more of a, of a the focus. So I think, but these are really the largest goals that most people have. And you can see out there's a little bit of change of attention of those over time. As Ryan mentioned, the top goal was pretty much always retirement. 
but we did see some shifts when we were looking at millennials or those that were unmarried or um, only had a high school education. That's where we saw more people focusing on buying a house first. So kind of that same angle of things may shift as someone grows older. But we did not do this over a long time frame. This was a one-time thing where we looked at what these goals were goals were for participants. We didn't go back and test it out again. You know, as people made, you know, 70% of your participants changed their, their results, you know, what their goals were. What did they change those, for people who said retirement was their goal, what did that change into for them? So actually, and this is something that we did check, that a lot of people who said retirement initially as their top goal, a lot of those people didn't actually change. Um, So that's why when we're looking at just the top one goal, only about 20% of people changed. Um, And that's something we wanted to make sure because if you really think about it, retirement is actually a pretty good investment goal to have. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't push people away from focusing on retirement as a, a very important top financial goal. Um, a lot of the changes came from a person's uh, top two or three goals. Um, and what we did see is that once a person saw the master list, uh, a few people changed from more short-term minded goals to more long-term minded goals or goals that were more vague in general to those that are more concrete. So I think Ryan mentioned this one earlier, but I think it's important that some person, some people said things like incidentals which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But after going through the master list, they moved on to things that were more uh, emotionally grounded, like, for example, to not be a burden to your family as you grow older. And this is important because as advisors, if a client tells you that they want to save for incidentals, that doesn't really give you much to work off of. But if they say, I want to make sure I'm not a burden to my family as as I grow older, it tells you more about who this client is as a person, you know, what their their life values are in a way. And it can really help start those deeper conversations that are really essential for the financial advising relationship. Getting back to that why question. Mm-hmm, yeah. Exactly. And to build off that, I mean, you hear sometimes people talk about how emotions can be bad when it comes to making decisions about money. And I would disagree. I think that understanding the motivations people have, these deep emotional connections of their goals is very valuable. And that can provide the why that can give people perhaps more fortitude when markets start to become much more volatile because they have a good answer to this. Why am I putting myself through this? Well, I'm trying to accomplish this overarching goal. And this really means a lot to me. So you would recommend that advisors really, you know, we talk about these, like you said, save more, even retirement versus not, you know, not being a burden on my children, trying to tie those goals back to some of those more emotional goals are going to get a better outcome and more, almost resiliency to some of the uncertainty. Yeah. So to, to answer that question, we know that vivid, personal, emotionally grounded goals can be really good motivators for people. And that is the kind of thing that can make people more robust to the kinds of volatility that we know markets will provide. Because like you were saying before, it provides an answer to this question of why. This is their big why of what they're trying to accomplish as investors. I think being able to help people focus on their goals and understand the investment process through that lens can give them more fortitude over the long run. Did you want to add anything, Samantha? No, I was about to, I was about to cite the same research. Um, So it was, also in the paper, that's why I was trying to find it as well, but research by Locke and Latham and where they found that people are more committed to goals if those goals are personalized and important to them, well-specified and accurate. And that's really the point of this research is to get all four of those categories in place for an, an investor. 
And when you say those four categories, repeat those for me again. Personalized, important to them, well-specified, and accurate. So that emotional aspect really gets to the personalized part of it, where it's, it's specific to them. It's something that they care about and something that they value in their lives. And in your research, did you find correlation with you know couples who are married versus not married or like with their spouses? Well, we have two points on that. So we did look for these sort of demographic differences and we really didn't find anything there. So that kind of analysis, those analyses didn't, didn't show any insights. But one of the questions that's come up with this tool and this process a lot from financial advisors is how to use this with a couple. And we have a little bit of feedback from this from field testing, but nothing all that formal. And the idea would be that a financial advisor would have a couple each do this process separately, independently. They would go through this process and then they would come back and discuss this. Now, I mean, one pushback as well, it feels a little bit like marital counseling. My point would be, you're going to be doing this kind of marital counseling anyway, right? So you might as well know where the fights are going to be about. But from the beginning, if you can get a couple to understand what they're both really motivated by and where they're aligned and maybe where those misalignments are, that's really important from the beginning because it's better to discover that at the beginning of this process of financial planning than in the middle when things become much more uncertain. I think using this technique with couples is a great way to make sure that both parts of the couple are engaged. A lot of the times with couples, you have that one partner that is just kind of, they're there, but maybe they're not speaking up too much. And another person or the other part of the couple is much more confident about talking about finances. So they're very much more involved. So having both sides of the couple use the, this this technique and get their own voice heard can be a great way to make sure that they're both engaged throughout the financial planning process. I've been talking to several um, counselors and it's just fascinating hearing how much work they do on like the counselor's biases. Can you tell me about blind spots for financial advisors and kind of what you guys have found in that and how advisors can be um, really making sure that their biases aren't impacting the clients or even the client outcomes? Absolutely. Well, but I think that that's one of the benefits, and maybe you want to ask a question around this, but one of the benefits of having there be a fixed process, like this, this checklist, right, and this process that Sam and I developed in this research, this would be applied to everyone. So everyone would get a very standard question. They'd have a standard three-step process. And that is really useful, I think, of putting there be an even playing field when clients are interacting with their financial advisors. Because you can imagine that some financial advisors may inadvertently just not ask certain questions to certain kinds of clients. And that may be a disservice. Well, I really like that idea and and using this as a way to a systematized process to really get better outcomes and and taking, you know, I mean, even whether or not I'm as an advisor having a good day or a bad day, you know, right. in my work with clients, uh, really making sure that there is a, a consistent process. Yeah, and I like that there's this framework. And the other thing, too, with this process is that it could be used over time. So during check-ins, maybe after three years or so, a client might revisit their overarching goals. Now, obviously, there's going to be some life changes if a client has children or these other sorts of things that can be big life events. But there may just be a reshifting of focus of what a client is trying to accomplish. And having the financial advisor be able to key into that and be able to speak to it, I think, is really important. It also gives a, a written record that you have a process then that you can point back to and say, no, this is what the client was really motivated by three years ago as we were setting up the portfolio. And that can be a useful benchmark for the client to understand themselves and understand how they themselves are changing as markets evolve. So we mentioned a little bit about some of the advisor blind spots, but I'm really curious for investors, what are, tell me more about their blind spots or what your research has really um, pulled out about that. 
Yeah, so one of the other research projects Sam and I have been working on in the last year had to do with what do people look for when they hire a financial advisor in the first place? And so we went through an exercise where we were asking people the sorts of traits and qualities they were looking for from a financial advisor. And at the same time, we also asked financial advisors what they think clients are looking for when they hire a financial advisor, right? So in a perfect world where everyone was rational and people understood the, you know, the market for advice perfectly, these two things should line up with each other. But we found some interesting discrepancies, which I think are worth highlighting. So on the positive side, we saw that people are very much looking for financial advisors to help them reach their financial goals. And that was great. That lines up for our best thinking on how we think good financial advice is given. It's goal-centric and it understands what clients are trying to accomplish. But one other thing that clients said that they were looking for is a financial advisor to help them maximize their returns. And this was, to us, it was a little bit of a head-scratcher because you start to think about it for a bit and lots of portfolios could be developed for clients that are right on track for helping them achieve their financial goals. And those portfolios are designed explicitly not to try and maximize returns. And so we thought this was really an interesting blind spot where people had coming into the advice process where they had a misunderstanding of what would constitute good advice. Because a portfolio may be goal-serving, but not be designed to maximize returns. And you could imagine how that discrepancy... That, that disconnect between those two things could cause problems for an advisor down the road in the relationship with the client because the portfolio may not be keeping track with a particular benchmark explicitly because it was designed not to. And along with that same research project, one of the attributes that we had in there was, um, I, I want my advisor to help me with my behavioral biases, something along those lines. I can't remember the exact phrasing right now. Maybe, Ryan, you can help me out there. But what we found was that investors actually rank this attribute dead last. And that's surprising because it just shows how these cognitive blind spots, we don't see our own behavioral mistakes. And really, one, the importance of helping investors understand all the ways in which our biases can lead us astray. But two, the importance of advisors really taking on this role of not only financial advisors, but also behavioral coaches and, and helping us starting to work through these emotional and behavioral biases that we always face in our finances. And you're saying that that was like the last thing that investors really wanted help with their financial advisors. Dead last. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, it was surprising too, because when you look at the literature, that this is one of the biggest sources of value that financial advisors can create for their clients. This kind of behavioral coaching, helping clients stay in control of their emotions when markets get volatile, helping them stay the course. This is a tremendous source of value. And it's a source of value that the clients are not appreciating is there and they should be wanting this. This should be at the top of their list in terms of the overall benefit it brings to them. But it turns out not to be the case. So this is a this is a big blind spot. It's fascinating. I mean, I have several pictures of people that I know um, who use this in the marketing of using saying like, we help you overcome, you know, they don't say overcome your biases, but that's the message that they're communicating. And so it's just interesting thinking that might not be what actually resonates with clients. It's a tough sell. We did a follow-up study with it. Sam and I, we, we looked at this and then we found that's just, it's amazing. I mean, that it's that, it's that far last. Um, and it wasn't just that it was barely in last place. I mean, there was a sizable gap between this and the rest of the, the crowd. So we did a follow-up study where we looked at changing the wording of it and talking about this kind of service, behavioral coaching, that kind of stuff in different terms. And we found that it helped. We found that we could move it up to kind of the middle 
of the pack by finding different phrasing for this particular kind of service that's provided by financial advisors. But we could never get it as far up on the list as it should be. Even if we get the phrasing really well-tuned, people just aren't appreciating this kind of behavioral coaching as a major source of value in their overarching financial undertakings. Fascinating. So a couple of the phrases that we did find helps people a little bit more were ways in which we phrase it that we give them an example of a possible behavioral mistake. So for example, um, the phrase that we gave them was helps protect my portfolio from excessive emotional reactions, e.g. panic selling during downturns. Uh, So we found that people tended to react a little bit better to that. But the phrasing that we use in the study was actually helps me stay in control of my emotions. So one of our thoughts was that maybe describing it like that was a little too accusatory. Like, Are we saying (laughs) that we can't control our emotions and maybe that's what turned people off so terribly? We even tried looking at uh, helps people stay in control of their emotions, right? So this, it's not that I have a bias. Other people might, but it's not necessarily mine. And even changing that phrasing, that didn't help at all. It was still, still way in last place. Well, I think as humans, I mean, we want to think that, like, I am very logical. Like, I don't make emotional decisions, but we know that's not true. Exactly. So maybe we just start to get at people's pride a little bit by that original phrasing. What are some of the most common blind spots or biases that, or mistakes that investors are making with with their money? Sure. So I I think we mentioned a few earlier this um, availability bias. We go with what's the top of our head in that moment when making a decision. But also one of the biases that I saw quite often, especially during that recent market volatility that we had was hurting behavior. So you have a tendency to want to follow the crowd. So I actually had friends that when the market was crashing, they're saying, hey, everyone at my job is doing something in their 401k. Should I be doing it too? And of course the question is much, or the answer is much more complicated than that. But just as human beings, we have this tendency to do what everyone else is doing. You know, we usually look for social indications for our behavior and doing that in our finances can get us into a lot of trouble. Or it could be Bitcoin and Tesla. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I think there's others as well. I mean, that absolutely Sam's right about that. Hurting is a, a definite bias we know about. Recency bias. People have a tendency to pay a lot of attention to what just happened in the news and the most recent news cycle. And I think that advisors can help reorient their clients not to think about what the market did yesterday, but what the market can do for them in the next 30 years. And a lot of evidence we see also is something called the confirmation bias. And so this is a tendency for people to have a conclusion in mind and then try and seek out evidence that only supports that conclusion they already have. And there's actually a little bit of irony in the sense that as we get more information available to us, as we have Google at our fingertips and lots of other sources of information, this kind of bias can become more pronounced because when you Google for something, you're already searching for evidence along the lines you're searching for, right? You tend not to be looking for evidence that's contrary to your existing beliefs. And that can make the confirmation bias all the more pronounced. So I think that when you know clients come in and they say, you know, here's what we need to do and here's why I think this, it's worth having a more nuanced discussion with them to try and understand how they're thinking about it and what sources of information they're using to support this belief. Because that could really fuel mistaken understanding of how markets work and also lead to a lot of overconfidence, which could lead to some really bad trades and bad financial behavior. If we're seeing a client have any one of these biases, you know, and we can recognize it. Is there research out there that really says, you know, here's a good way of handling it or here's a good way of approaching the client? 
Um, is it just about giving them more facts and information or, or how, what are the, what's the best way to approach some of these biases? I think one of the simplest ways of helping investors or clients think a little more thoughtfully would be using processes like the one we described, so this three-step process using the master list, but also just asking them to think of the opposite. So if you are very determined to buy this security, think of all the reasons why a person on the other side of that trade might not want to or might, might want to sell this exact same security. So forcing investors to take on that other perspective. I know this sounds like a very simple technique, but you'd be surprised how often investors don't do this on their own or human beings in general don't do this on their own. And this can be a great way of tackling confirmation bias that Ryan just mentioned. And the problem there with confirmation bias is it's not only that we're looking for information that supports our opinion, but our minds just pay more attention to information that supports our opinion. So asking your client this direct question, give me three good reasons why this is a bad idea, um, can help them get to that other side and think, think about the question a little more well-roundedly. Yeah, I have very little to add to that. I think that's a re- it's a really good set of points. And I, I think that there's some efforts in the, the literature to talk about ways in which we can increase people's financial literacy. And I'm very skeptical about this approach. I don't think we have any simple techniques in which we can just train people and that they'll act perfectly rationally or much more rationally when it comes to making financial decisions. I think what we have is an opportunity to help coach them in the moment. And exactly what Sam was describing there is a great way to counter confirmation bias or overconfidence bias is a technique to help people try and think of the other side of the trade. And that can help reduce the kind of overconfidence that they might be holding to if they weren't otherwise you know, led through this process. You know, that's really interesting, Ryan. You're, t- you're talking about this idea of financial literacy as there's not maybe this great, here's what you need to do to make everybody understand all these finances. I guess for somebody who is financially illiterate, do they have to first discover that they need help, like that they want to learn about it? Or can I, what would be your, your recommendation on that for people who really care about this t- topic of financial literacy? I would say if they really care about financial literacy, it's worth backing up and asking, okay, what do you really care about? Financial literacy is a means to an end of making better decisions. But the evidence is pretty overwhelmingly clear in that financial literacy doesn't help, doesn't stick, and it doesn't really help people make better decisions in broader contexts. And so we haven't found the magic wand yet, which we can wave and make people rational. So I think it's worth backing up and saying, okay, so what can we do then? Well, there is no simple way just to make them rational, but there's this emerging idea called choice architecture, where we start to think very carefully about applying lessons and principles from behavioral and decision sciences into contexts where people have to make really important decisions. So the process that we started this discussion about during this podcast was about this process of helping people understand their goals. Notice we're not trying to educate people to be rational or give them an overarching framework to how to properly think about their priorities and goals. Rather, we're using a technique to give them a little bit more time and space to understand and discover their own preferences and their own overarching aspirations. And that's an example of choice architecture. We're finding a way to help nudge people understand themselves better and make better choices from that. But we're not trying to educate them to be perfectly rational. And I think there's a lot of promise in techniques like this. And I think that one of the great sources of value that financial planners will have for their clients in the next decade is the development and the application of these kinds of choice architectures. Oh my goodness. I feel like that's like a whole nother podcast episode, but I love this idea of we can't educate people to be perfectly rational. It's really uphill. And and that's so much of what we see in a lot of spaces is we're just saying if they had the information, they would make the right choice. 
Yeah, but that that's just not how people work. I mean, you can't, you know, if that were the case, then people would be reading the fine print and not making bad financial decisions. And that's just not how it works. So I think that this idea of just give them more information, they'll read it, they'll build their own Excel sheet, they'll adjudicate all of the information and come up with a, a rational balancing between this that's utility maximizing is, well, that's just not how humans work. As financial advisors, maybe that's our goal is to help our clients make better decisions. Absolutely. And I think that what we're coming to then is an understanding of how can you help real people who are not perfectly rational, who are flawed, who have these cognitive biases, who have limited attention, you know, meager willpower sometimes. How can you still help them act in their best interest and make close to rational decisions in spite of you know, somewhat flawed, flawed hardware? Well, it even begs the question of what's um, a good decision. Because, you know, emotional decision versus an irrational decision. Well, I think that we do have ways to think about that. I think that you, you, and it goes back to this idea of asking the person and helping them really understand why are they, why are they doing this to themselves? Why are they delaying consumption of the resources they have now? And why are they putting that money at risk? And I think that helping people understand that overarching why is, is the framework. That's the lens that can then help us understand what kinds of decisions are good based on that overarching ob objectives and goals that they have. Before we sign off, is there anything that you would like to add or anything in this conversation, you know, especially thinking through, you know, new financial planners, what you would want them to know about their work as financial advisors or, or any, any advice that you would have for them? One thing that any, any financial planner, new financial planner should really take away from this research is just how much of a, a lot of the, the questions that it, as advisors, we ask investors, we think that an investor should know what their top financial goal is. They should know why they walk into your office. However, because we're humans, it, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And this gets to what Ryan was talking about just a few mo moments ago. Uh, we're human beings. We're not perfectly rational. And because of that, some of these questions are going to require that the advisor works as a behavioral coach and starts incorporating choice architecture, such as this three-step technique that we presented in the research. There are these simple questions that you can ask people. You know, what are your overarching goals as an investor? And they can give you answers, and they themselves might even believe them, but you should be skeptical. And it's not because people are trying to lie to you, and it's not because they're, they're stupid. It's just because that turns out to be a really hard question. Uh, people's attention is not directed to 30-year overarching financial goals. It's much more local. You know, what am I having for lunch? Where's my cell phone? These kinds of things. And so I think what financial advisors can do is develop processes that help people better understand themselves, better understand what they're trying to accomplish, and understand how investing fits into that, that process of them reaching their goals. And so I think that financial advisors can, can do this in constructive ways that don't rely on us, assuming that people are perfectly rational or understand all the ins and outs of investing, but rather that we have a very goal-centric process that helps people understand what they're trying to do and that the actions they're taking today give them the best chances of getting where they want to go. Well, thank you both uh, Samantha and Ryan for being with us today. We certainly appreciate it and we are so grateful for the research and the work that you guys are doing to help make us be better financial planners. And so thank you again for being here and for your work. Thanks so much for having us. Of course. Our pleasure. 
This episode is brought to you by the 2021 Summer FPA Externship and eMoney, a leading provider of technology and solutions that help people talk about money. Don't miss out on the flexible internship experience that made waves across financial planning in 2020. The FPA Externship is great for college students and practicing financial planners alike. Come see how other FPA members grow their business and lead with financial planning using eMoney. Also, don't miss this opportunity to get eMoney certified. Check out fpaexternship.org for more information or sign up for the waitlist. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.